episode of Women Rabbis Talk. We are so excited that you have decided to listen and join us for this episode. I am Rabbi Marcy Bellows and with me is Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. Yay and we hope you enjoy and tell all your friends. So Marcy what are we thinking about today? Well I recently had a chance to offer an adult continuing education class at a local community college that it's a really cool program. The adults who are over 50 can pay one fee and take as many classes as they want over like a two month period. And it's all just lishma, you know, just for its own sake. And there's opera and literature and art and nature. And they asked me to come in and do anything about Judaism that I wanted. And recognizing that the bulk of the learners would not be Jewish, I decided to offer a class on creation chapter one and creation chapter two through a Jewish lens, figuring that it was a topic that a lot of people think they know really well, but probably haven't read word for word. And it would be really interesting to do so. But then also it would give me a chance to introduce, you know, the idea of Darshani of a text that wants us to interpret and play with it. And what are Midrashim and what is continuing revelation? And, you know, of course, talk about my hero Lilith. So it was just a really, right? Lilith is, you know, she's the bomb. And so it was just awesome to be able to to teach. They were two two two-hour sessions. And um, there's something that felt really subversive about it, about presenting to a group of um, a really mixed audience, all of these interesting ways of studying Judaism and being allowed to question and being allowed to read the text yourself. Um, Mm. I think so often we might take for granted the ability to do that and forget that other religious traditions don't invite that in the same way. Do you know what I mean? I definitely know what you mean. Have you encountered that at all with any of your learners? I think in the context of sort of Torah study in the synagogue, most of our learners are comfortable questioning, but definitely when we have new members to the community or especially people who are in our conversion program, they are often more hesitant and also are excited when they discover that they have a newly discovered sort of freedom to question and experience the text through their own lens. Yeah. Yeah, right. And that lightning is not going to strike them if they doubt something or if they question God's motivation or even say, wait, did God screw up in Genesis chapter one? And that's why Eve had to be created later. And I have all kinds of things to say about that. But um, but yeah, you know, I think it's uh, it's actually so freeing to think about text uh, and Torah from a Jewish point of view. Definitely. And Emma, what are you thinking about this week? So I was recently on a phone call with the leaders of the 
SAUPJ, which is the South African Union for Progressive Judaism. And we're starting to plan our 2020 biennial. And the topic that we're exploring is what is progressive Judaism in the South African context. And it's just been a really interesting awakening or sort of reminder for me that progressive Judaism isn't exactly the same all over the world, that there are lots of um, really important values and ideals that unite us, but that different countries have different flavors and different regions have different um, focuses and priorities. And I did, of course, know that from living, growing up in Canada and then living in the States. But it's sort of interesting to be a part of the conversation here about how South African progressive Jewry can or wants to differentiate itself from North American versions and Israeli versions and other versions around the world. So I've been thinking a lot about that lately. What differences are you noticing? Um, Well, similar to Canada, South Africa tends to be a little bit more traditional leaning than Reform Judaism in the States. So we use more Hebrew when, when we pray and we are more deeply invested, I think, in conversations around how to relate to and get along with other kinds of Jews, because in South Africa, we're not the majority of Jews. Um, So it's a very different relationship between the progressive community and other denominations, which makes decision making on topics that particularly take us in a different direction from other denominations more complicated than it might be in parts of the world where Reform Judaism is in the majority or is large enough to not necessarily be as worried about that impact. Can I ask a question, Emma? Of course you can. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm jumping in on, on the um, in the vein of asking really good questions. If you think about the South African Jewish population between progressive Jews, unaffiliated Jews, and then much more traditional Jews, is it a similar breakdown to the rest of the world, you know, where you have a higher number of unaffiliated? Yes. Yes, and South Africa is the most like, in my experience anyway, the most like Israel, where there isn't much known about non-Orthodox versions of Judaism. And so even secular Jews, even Jews that I would say are secular Jews here, will often identify themselves as Orthodox because they grew up in or their parents belong to, or they belong to, but never go to an Orthodox synagogue. So I don't know the exact numbers, but I suspect that, yes, the largest group of Jews in South Africa probably is um, or is becoming secular. But but I don't think most of them, or certainly the majority of them, wouldn't identify themselves as secular. They would identify themselves as Orthodox. Right, right, right. So fascinating. The expression here is you're as Orthodox as your rabbi is. Right. Wow. <laughs> Which is sort of similar to when I was in Israel and and people would say that, you know, the shul I don't go to is an Orthodox right. shul. And what does that mean so, for you as a woman rabbi? 
I mean, part of why I came here was to be part of that conversation and the growth and future of progressive Judaism in South Africa um, and to bring the learning and perspective of women rabbis to bear on that conversation. Yeah, I think my being here allows us to approach or reapproach conversations that might not have been happening before I got here or as often or from a new direction which is great. It's been one of the really awesome parts of being here so far. Yeah. Wow. It's so important that you're there. Thanks. Yeah. I think so. Same thing. Well, we have already had a chance to hear a little bit of the brilliance of our very special guest this episode. We are so honored that Rabbi Jessica Marshall has agreed to come and speak with us. Hi, Rab- everyone. Hi. Hey. So, Rabbi Jessica Kessler Marshall believes to her depths that the universe is here to dance with each of us in co-creation, offering spiritually inclusive rituals for weddings, women's gatherings, and retreats. She incorporates mindfulness and the awe of the natural world. Jessica guides participants in abundance and joy by connecting to their own rich soul wisdom. Her rituals sanctify where each are on our journey with humor, divine presence, authenticity and overflowing compassion. Jessica is a distance cyclist, a diehard podcast devotee, thanks, and connoisseur of almond butter and jelly sandwiches. So welcome officially, Rabbi Jessica Marshall. We are so excited to have you. It's such an honor to be with you, truly. So throughout our episode today, what would you like us to call you and why? such an important question. As an, And I, as I've been listening to your other episodes, it's always so interesting to hear what my colleagues have to say too. Um, I go by Rabbi Jessica Kessler Marshall professionally. Kessler is my mom's maiden name, and she actually gave our entire family Kessler as our middle name, including my dad. My sister and I are the only Kesslers left in our family, so it's important for me to use it. It's really interesting. I think like your other two guests, I really, I'm, uh, Rabbi Jessica does not resonate for me deeply. It's my own, you know, I think as, as our colleague Rabbi Leah Berkowitz said, like there's a a cutesiness that is challenging for me. And I think also just my feminist sensibilities, like I don't find that men are called rabbi in their first name in, in the same way that women are. So I go by Rabbi Marshall. My younger students, I've always had them call me Rabbi M. I like the informality of, you know, a nickname. I just, you know, we work really hard for our title. And I think that it's it's important to use it. You two absolutely can call me Jessica. <laughs> that I feel that I feel great about. Professionally, I go by Rabbi Marshall. That is very cool, and it is. It's such a deeply personal question that we all wrestle with, and that's why Emma and I decided to really make it a core question that we asked of each guest. So thank you for your thoughtful answer. So yeah. Jessica, tell us more about yourself. Oh my goodness, where to even begin? Well. You know, I love the phrase, we contain multitudes, right? I think I specifically gave you a bio that had both, you know, professional background and who I am and what lights my soul up. I'll share kind of a little bit about my path professionally and then can share the personal piece too, because everything is always connected. 
So I was ordained now almost 11 years ago by the reform movement. Emma and I were in school together many moons ago. My first position out of school was at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, as uh, the campus rabbi, and then was uh, eight and a half years in Washington State. I was in a beautiful, beautiful reform congregation in Everett, Washington, just north of Seattle. And I would say really came into my own there. It was such a mutual love fest between me and my congregation and a tremendous amount of respect and really loved it. And then was ready for a new adventure and sunshine and a little more control over my schedule. And so I've been in Denver now a little bit over two years and I'm truly creating my dream life. I'm offering all sorts of creative ritual and life cycle events and speaking and women's retreats and really building my business in a way that feels deeply aligned in terms of kind of how I want to serve, how I want to work, you know, not being in the hustle and being much more in my own kind of honoring my own intuition um, in terms of how I want to build it. So yeah, that's the professional piece. And then, you know, we'll get perhaps a little bit later on in the podcast to my own spiritual journey and the way that I hold my rabbinic identity, as well as kind of more expansive and inclusive spiritual connections that I feel. So how did you choose to become a rabbi? Oh, such a fun, good question. And I love that everyone's answer is so different. Okay, so when I was a junior in college, my little sister found out about a free trip to Israel through Eish HaTorah. And for those who don't know, Eish is an Orthodox organization that's known for their outreach efforts, we'll say. Um, And I had grown up in a reform home and really had a lovely connection to Judaism. We would sit down for Shabbat dinner every Friday night, um, and we went to services like pretty regularly, but were not particularly observant in a deep halachic sense, like in terms of Jewish law. So I didn't know that Shabbat was also on Saturday, like like many Reformed Jews. And we had pork on Thanksgiving because my dad doesn't like turkey and, you know, all these things. So that's kind of my background. And then my sister and I went on this Orthodox trip to Israel and I loved it. I love the sense of meaning that these Jews brought to everything that they did. They really infused meaning into every aspect of their lives. And I love the sense of a tight-knit community that felt so present for each other. And then I came home from that trip and tried keeping Shabbat the way that they did, because I found myself really connected to the idea of, of Shabbat. I was totally bored because I had no community. Like Shabbat is not meant to be done in isolation. But that really got the gears turning in my head. And then the following summer, I was in D.C. at a student internship. And it was my first Friday night there. And I knew that I really wanted to go to services, but I didn't know where to go or how to get there or anything like that. I got out a phone book remember those, got out a phone book and I found a reform synagogue in the phone book and I got out of work early and I was like rushed and running down the street after the bus, you know, searching for change to pay the bus fare. And I got there just in the nick of time and everyone was standing in the foyer and the cantor was playing Lachado D on the guitar. And I just felt like, oh, there's no place I'd rather be. It felt so right. 
And I remember that they had the Oneg before services. So this is the like noshes. And I, and I was hungry. And so I got fed. I just felt incredibly nourished and well taken care of. And as I was walking in the doors to the synagogue, there was a, an older couple who was walking in at the same time. And I, I said, hi, introduced myself. And they said, oh, are you here alone? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, come sit with us. And instead of putting me next to them, like beside them, they put me in between them, which was such a powerful gesture, something beautiful for us to think about in terms of like a welcoming community. So here I am sitting nestled between them, feeling incredibly enveloped and, you know, truly held in sacred space. The rabbi did two things. He did a baby naming and then he blessed a couple on their 58th wedding anniversary. And this is this adorable older couple. The man was probably like four feet tall, white hair, you know, hunched over. And he was gingerly holding his wife's arm as they kind of made their way up the steps of the bima to where the Taurus were. And I got all choked up. And back then I really wasn't a crier, so that was a big deal. <laughs> now I cry at Charmin commercials. But I, I was really touched in that moment. I just thought to myself, wow, we have the power to sanctify these sacred moments and make them holy. I felt, I felt deeply touched. And I went back to my rabbi from home and told him about this. And he said, yes, you should be a rabbi. And I was like, I don't want a job that's 24-7. And I don't have to deal with synagogue politics. And I don't have to write a sermon every week. You know, all these excuses. And I've really found a way to honor, you know, this deep calling inside that's felt aligned for me. Yeah, that's what got me started on my path. Wow, what a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, you know, this thread of of sanctifying moments has, has remained a through line throughout my rabbinate. Um, so it's just interesting, you know, how things come full circle. Hmm. Any other roles or positions you've had that you want to tell us about or highlight along the way? Hmm. Well, I would say, you know, more recently, leading women's retreats has just, it, you know, when we have certain experiences that just light up our soul and we're like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm meant to be doing. It's been incredibly powerful. You know, I was honored to be on the Women's Rabbinic Network board um, the two previous years and helped co co lead the last convention, uh, which was in Scripps, California. So was able to kind of introduce my colleagues to a little bit of what I do. And that was really, really special. I led a, a program where we just took some time to tap into our own inner soul wisdom and really um, do some writing around what was coming through for us and then sharing in sisterhood and in community. So I think, you know, leading sacred circles, women's circles and women's retreats has been another another role that's been really, really deeply aligned and, and joyous for me too. Jessica, when you were writing to me and to us about what you um, wanted to talk about with us and about your work, you used the phrase 
dancing between being a reform rabbi, a mystic, and metaphysics, which was such a powerful and beautiful image. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about how you do that and what that means and what that looks like. Can you tell us, I guess, first a little bit more about that and then more about the spiritual entrepreneurship adventure that you've been on building a business from a feminine energetic model, as you described it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of goodies in there, right? And it's funny, you too, as I was as I was preparing for today, I, um, I took some time to look up different ways of understanding metaphysics and mysticism too, because, you know, labels can have so many different meanings. So it was fun kind of um, gathering all sorts of different understandings. And I like the word, you know, I like the idea of dancing between different identities because we really do contain multitudes. You know, we have so many parts of us. So I really identify as a reform rabbi. I mean, I think for me, the idea of educated choice, the idea that it's our responsibility to learn as much as we can and then decide for ourselves what feels personally meaningful is is so true for me and and deeply important. The incredible progressive nature of reform Judaism in terms of social progressiveness and values is is like core to my being. So that's the rabbi piece. In terms of mysticism, the way I understand it is really a sense that there's something going on way beyond our physical world, something way beyond what we can see, truths that are beyond the intellect and what it feels like to have a direct experience with the mystery, uh, the mystery with a capital M. And for me, really, the belief that when we're plugged into the universe, spirit, eternal, divine, there's a sense of partnership together and that the universe really wants to offer us a life beyond our wildest dreams if we if we want to dance there and if we want to tap into it. That's the way I see mysticism for myself. And then the metaphysical piece, and again, like so many different ways to understand this, is really understanding the divine as a synthesis of body, mind, and spirit. And it's interesting, you know, Judaism has so many beautiful teachings around what we do and how we behave and how we treat people, all of which are incredibly close to my heart. And I think for me, you know, metaphysics and mindfulness kind of taps into that other really important piece of the idea that our thoughts create our reality. You know, for instance, if we want more light in our lives, we need to bring it, right? That the the way, the, the energy that we put out into the world is then going to be reflected back to us. And so the metaphysical piece for me is really how do I embrace an expansive way of being and a joyful experience of life and and infuse that into everything? And that doesn't mean, I want to say like really strongly, that doesn't mean that everything is ponies and rainbows all the time or that we spiritually bypass the hard stuff or that we're not incredibly tender and compassionate with ourselves and with others and that we don't feel pain for really tough experiences it is an understanding that the way that we approach them in terms of our thoughts and our energy can be profoundly powerful for us. I wish our listeners could see Mercy and I enthusiastically nodding along <laughs> as you're talking. <laughs> yeah. We're so we're so into it. 
So you have taken a sort of a different approach to your rabbinate in the past few years, building a business. And yeah, tell us more about that journey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think because, you know, this podcast is about women and how we approach things differently, I'll kind of share a little bit about this entrepreneurial path. It's funny, I had someone who's um, kind of newly stepping into this meet last week for coffee. And and she asked me, what do you wish you had known when you started on this path that like you would give me as advice? And I'm going to tell you what I told her, which is all about really like a more feminine model. I'm going to say four different things, four different things that I've held close. The first is really tapping into my own intuition and honoring that sense that we have of an aligned path. That doesn't mean that I don't love me a good to-do list. And, you know, sometimes we have to put our tush in the chair and just get stuff done. However, more and more, when I get a spark of someone I could reach out to, or when I just feel like, you know what, this does not feel juicy or exciting to me at all. I just don't do it. Like I don't force myself to be in the hustle. I create from a place of joy and juice and alignment. I also tap a lot into my own inner soul wisdom. And I do an activity that I'll share with your listeners that I find incredibly helpful. When I'm wrestling with what to do about something, I'll get out a journal and I'll get out two different colored pens or markers. And I'll write a question that I'm wrestling with in one color. And then I'll kind of ground myself in a, you know, through breath work, or I like to use sage, you know, like different smells. And then I'll let the answer come forth from my own, I say, soul wisdom, you know, from my neshama, from our like deepest, truest sense. And it's always so interesting, you too, like my handwriting changes, my, my neshama always swears a lot. <laughs> I get a lot of, <laughs> of F-bombs that come out. Um, and the answer is always incredibly simple and direct and true. It's, you know, it usually is around like this doesn't have to be this complicated. You don't have to push so hard. Do what lights you up, you know. So so it's really honoring that. The other The other really big important aspect, which is so true of like a feminine leadership model, is tapping into all of the ways that we as women lift each other up and collaborate and support each other. And so I've really surrounded myself with this amazing soul tribe of like-minded women, some men too, but more women, who we just offer each other all these opportunities for collaboration, sharing our gifts with each other, promoting each other, you know, the the ways that we elevate each other. So that's a huge piece. I'm on the phone multiple times a day saying, oh my gosh, you should talk to so-and-so. You know, we, we each have kind of different shades of the rainbow in terms of how we offer our gifts and how we serve. So that's a really big piece. And then the other is just an incredibly embodied way of being. So really tapping into the wisdom that we hold in our bodies, not just our minds. So what feels like it's lighting me up? You know, what feels expansive and joyous and honoring that? And I I really spend a lot of time each day 
out of my head and and honoring my neshama, my spirit, in terms of how I serve. And I found that when I can be in an energy that's joyous and generous and lit up, a lot more creativity comes to me and a lot more generosity in terms of how I serve others comes as well. I just hit you with a lot, um, but I know that it sounds amazing. And I was thinking you're like the, the Marie Kondo of women rabbis, like coming from a place of joy. Yeah. Gosh, you know, Emma and I, man, I don't want people to think that it's like, it comes in a snap. I certainly have worked through a lot of the societal messages that we get around, this is lazy, this is self-indulgent. I mean, believe me, there's been a lot of that. And Mm -hmm. I found that the truth is much more abundance can come in when I'm not in a place of a fear, truly a fear, because those messages are just fear. And I'll share with you a, a beautiful Jewish nugget. So the Talmud teaches us that at the very end of our lives, um, the eternal comes to us and asks us to account for all of the pleasures that were offered us to offer to us in this lifetime that we didn't partake in. And so it's grounded in our tradition too, you know, this this invitation to really soak up life and to soak up all of the joys, both big and more subtle, you know, that are presented to us and use those to help serve the world. And so I really, I ground myself in that as well. Mm, I love that sort of reframing of that, the the choose life theme. Yes, yes. Not just, not just as, you know, choose good, but choose what sparks joy. Cool. Really, really cool. Yeah. And they, they feed each other, right? You know, when we're in a place of, of joy and alignment and generosity, we are it's like an automatic almost next step of feeling called to tikkun alum to creating a more light and equality and justice in our world. Yeah. yeah, I'm really resonating with that and and thinking about the way that I set boundaries in my rabbinate, congregational rabbis 101, we re, we need boundaries. Yeah. And um and I I was very lucky that I was taught that in rabbinical school and and started my career thinking about that. And, and so I, I feel really good about my boundaries, but often find that I have to justify them to others. And one of the things that I try to say when different boundaries are questioned is that the boundaries that I have around my rabbinate, I have so that I can be healthy and so that I can have a healthy relationship with my community and that makes me a better rabbi and better able to serve them and that the boundaries are as much for them as for me. Do you find, um, I'm curious to hear from both of you, that when you do set boundaries with others, you feel like 100% okay about it? Like, is there a part of you that feels, um, I don't know, guilty or bad or worried that you should be doing more? Because I know that was something that came up for me a little bit as a congregational rabbi. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do. I do sometimes feel that that guilty feeling. Although I would also say that sometimes I feel fine with my boundaries until somebody else questions them. 
Yeah. And then I feel defensive about them and have to find a way to respond that doesn't show how defensive I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think, and, and I wonder, I mean, in the, in the context of, of thinking about women rabbis, I wonder if our male and male identified colleagues have the same experience when they set boundaries or if they have a different experience. It would be interesting to ask them. I would be curious. Yeah. Yeah. I know for me with boundaries, something that's helped me so much has been therapy um, because I think so many of us who are drawn into the helping professions in general, but especially, you know, clergy positions, we are natural helpers and fixers and healers. And therefore we can become depleted so easily. And so setting energetic boundaries, setting time boundaries, and also, you know, like you said, finding time for joy and for play is critical in order to be the best you that you can be. And I find that my body communicates to me so much. And the more I ignore it, the louder it gets until I have no choice but to listen to it. And I've become much better over the last probably decade at really listening to the cues of my body. But, you know, when I was on Long Island uh, in a congregation, and I realized that I was out of balance in terms of work and play, I had a kind of secret identity, which didn't remain secret for the whole time. But I went into Manhattan to do improv for years. Oh, my gosh, I love that, Marcy. And it was so great. You know, I just I had a place to just play and be silly and be obscene and let things out. And um and it re it rebalanced me. I found, you know, a homeostasis that was so much healthier for me. A hundred percent. And, you know, sometimes um, the message from our bodies is not this, you know, not this. And it's so loud. And, and we don't maybe even know what the yes is, but we know it's not this. And so then to honor that and, and kind of work our way backwards from there. Yeah. I, um, it's funny we're talking about this. I, was I, I came across a meme yesterday. It's a picture of the giving tree and the little boy standing next to the giving tree. And it says, and the tree created boundaries and the tree was happy. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. So true, right? So true. And then it doesn't end up a stump at the end of the story. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah saddest moment in my life was realizing how horrible that story is (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) it's so dysfunctional and codependent (laughs) well we can can reframe it as we've done with many uh many texts right Uh, if if as three women rabbis or three rabbis we can't reframe it we're in big trouble that's true All right. So tell us more about these retreats that you've been leading for women. Um, You wrote to us about the power of immersive experiences. And you mentioned in particular, it sounds like a ritual where you hand out permission slips. And we'd love to hear more about those things. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I do a few different things on my retreats. You know, one of the kind of tropes throughout our conversation has really been 
what happens when a group comes together and we're able to create a deep sense of belonging and feeling deeply seen. Um, I don't think there's anything more powerful than that, you know, for, for us as humans. And then really a soul tribe of like-minded support. Um, so just the power of that container is transformative. And then when we bring in the ingredient of inviting people to get really in touch with their joy and their own inner wisdom, such a powerful element. You know, as we all know, like when we think about immersive experiences, whether it's summer camp or, you know, communities of other like-minded people, the power of being away from technology and kind of normal adult life it just enables us to drop into something deeper. You know, the, the participants just find themselves able to experience a shift. And then what happens when we're able to provide a um, container of ongoing support and helping people stay in that juicy space, it's incredibly transformative. So, you know, the permission slips that I hand out really come from the participants themselves. It comes from people identifying like what lights us up? What is the life that I want to be living? And then as a group, we say to each other, permission granted, like, yes, here's the blessing to to go forth and do this. And I think, you know, it comes in all different flavors. It comes from people saying, you know, I want permission to not pick up the phone when my mother-in-law calls. I want permission to go into the city and do improv, you know, when and, and light myself up. It's the permission to go on a trip, even though maybe we have some debt and, you know, like do something that doesn't seem super practical. It's the permission to leave a job that I find draining and soul killing. You know, it's, it's all sorts of things. It's the permission to leave the house 15 minutes early, tell someone that I my appointment starts 15 minutes earlier and just take some time for ourselves. It's all different kinds of things. And it's really encouraging people to dream bigger than they thought possible. That's kind of the container. And then I do a lot with creative nature-based ritual. You know, Judaism has so much of that built in. Uh, I heard an under a definition and understanding of ritual recently that I really liked. This is from Chip and Dan Heath. And they said, if we see our lives as an unfolding story, rituals recognize where the prose of life needs punctuation. Mm. Rituals recognize where the prose of life needs punctuation. Beautiful. Yeah. When we attune to life's peaks, pits, and transitions, we break the script and create more moments of elevation in our lives. And so when we're able to take a moment to, you know, recognize moments that are both momentous and subtle. It's really an invitation to kind of meld our physical world with the spiritual. And so I do a lot around ritual with both releasing things that no longer serve us and, and welcoming in new possibilities. The part that seems so profound and sad but uplifting to me is that we feel so unable to give ourselves that permission to do these yes. things and to mark these moments in our lives or to make these changes or choices. Um, and thank goodness we have spaces where we can get permission from others. But oh boy, yeah. do I wish it were easier to grant ourselves permission. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's so true. It's so true. And I will say, Marcy, that I do feel 
like we are in the midst of a galactic shift. You know, I feel like a lot of structures in our in our world and our society are are crumbling in ways that are scary and that are shifting. And that as we step more into, you know, women's empowerment and honoring all of the wisdom that we have as women, we're slowly breaking some of um, that guilt and giving ourselves more permission slips. I really do feel that. Mm. Wow. I'm thinking about all of the things that I don't like to do without permission. <laughs> it's a long Honey, I'm right there with you. I am right <laughs> there with you. And the invitation that I'll give, you know, our listeners is that it's often really subtle it does not have to be, you know, lightning on the top of a mountain. It's saying no or saying yes, you know, to really little things and just turning our head like an eighth of an inch in the direction that feels juicier. But I'm I'm right there with you. You know, it's something that we we all struggle with, especially as empaths, especially as people pleasers, you know, all all of those kinds of things. And I'm so curious to know, are you do you ground that conversation in Jewish text, Jewish language, Jewish ideas? Absolutely. I mean, it depends on who I'm working with, too. Um, more and more, I'm working with people who are um, Jewish and people who are not Jewish. And so I'll bring the idea of Shabbat in always. Like, here's a perfect example. So Judaism has Judaism really revolves around the cycles of the moon, right? It's our entire calendar. So I'll bring in the idea that the new month starts, you know, we begin with the the sliver of the new moon. We don't start with the full moon. We start in a place of more darkness, right? The unknown, a place of perhaps less light. And we move from there into a place of, deeper wisdom and deeper light. So too, kind of with our own growth, right? Growth cannot come without like hardship and struggle and hot mess moments and everything in between. And so I really kind of, I let Judaism dance with other broader understandings of spirituality. Yeah. And I'll use the power of the new moon to set intentions and the power of the full moon to release that which no longer serves us. So that's grounded in Judaism too. So it's all, yeah, they dance in tandem. Wow, the waxing Amazing. and waning is going to be so much more symbolic for me now. Thank you. Yeah, I really me notice. Too. I notice her more. Also, the moon. You know, I I I'm in dialogue with her more often. It's very sweet, actually. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, is there anything else that you want to tell us about harnessing creative nature-based rituals in the work that you're doing? Well, I'll give, I'll give our listeners kind of another example. So the mikvah, the Jewish ritual bath, has been a part of our tradition for, uh, you know, thousands of years. And one of the ways that, I, that I've used mikvah in new and creative ways is thinking about the power of water and how we can use it to bless moments. So um, I've both used kind of traditional Orthodox mikvah oat, and also I found this beautiful pool that's in a, a woman's home in, in the Denver area. Um, she has like a greenhouse and an above ground pool that she uses for kind of aquatic healing. And it's uh, the space feels energetically different than an Orthodox mikvah. 
it has <laughs> she has a sign on the door that says the goddess is in you know enough said so it just it just has a, a playful energy to it that I really like so I've used this Jewish tradition of immersing in the mikvah as a way of of marking sacred moments as a way as a way to understand kind of purification in its broadest sense right cleansing ourselves renewing ourselves the connection to water as a really embodied practice it's so being in our bodies and if if we can see water symbolically as as lifting us up right we're really weightless in water and supporting us and something to kind of push back against right um, the idea of a womb like container the Jewish idea of moving through a body of water as we go from a place of constricted narrowness into a place of expansiveness as we cross through the sea to get to, you know, freedom on the other side. So that's another example. I do a lot of really beautiful creative rituals with people in the mikvah, both, you know, a traditional Orthodox mikvah and also the the celestial pool that I use outside of Denver. So I'm doing... I'm doing a ritual, for instance, for a woman who just had a baby and is going back to work soon, and she's really struggling with that and wanted a way to kind of mark that, both the sadness that she feels and also the, you know, opportunity to continue to to work and do professional work that lights herself up. So that's another example of kind of ways that I'm using powerful Jewish rituals and also finding new ways to infuse meaning into them. Sounds so great. I I can't wait to hear more about that in the years to come, how you're able to grow this business that you've started and the impact that I'm sure you're having on the Denver community and can't wait to see the ripple effects. And yeah, thank you for telling us about it. Thanks, Emma. I can't wait to see where it goes to. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen, and I'm I'm embracing all of it. So, yeah. Sometimes you just jump, you know? So true. Yeah. So, Jessica, uh, during each episode, we have a segment called Ask the Rabbi, where we have invited... Uh, people online to submit questions to us that they would like to hear women rabbis answer questions they've always had for women rabbis or have always wanted to ask and today's question comes from Karen Vergen who actually was a former congregant of mine at a student pulpit really terrific learned wonderful person Uh, and she asks when answering Jewish questions of law or tradition or practice Do you make a special effort to consider the question from a female-centered viewpoint? Or is it, quote-unquote, just a Jewish viewpoint and you happen to be a female answering? And this seems like such a perfect question for you. Mm, Yeah, what a great question. I love this. I think that for me, I probably my identify my identity as a reformed Jew might dictate my answer even more than that as a female rabbi. Probably the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law holds a little bit more weight. I think, you know, I can always give someone an answer that is, here's the traditional response. Um, And as someone who's 
progressive and expansive in my thinking, I tend to probably defer more towards what actually feels aligned to you, what feels more meaningful to you, kind of that those qualities may be more feminine, right? So perhaps it's a little bit of both, um, but that's what I'd say. Yeah, what about for you two? I'm curious. I think much like you, my go-to place when answering questions of law or tradition or practice is what is the progressive or the reform perspective on this? But I, I yeah, I think I, I resonate with what you're saying that, that there is a, a way in which being w- women is connected to that because progressive Judaism has taken into account women's voices and egalitarian values when coming up with those responses. So I, I definitely see them as woven together. Yeah. What about you, Merce? I, you know, I've never really thought about this, um, you know, the mechanism behind my my answering. And I I guess there's three layers to what I offer. I, when someone asks me a question of what does Judaism say about or, you know, let's say there's a, a death in the congregation, people want to know what's required of them or family or that kind of thing. I definitely answer with the tradition first so that yeah. they at least know you know, what are we starting with? Then I'll give the progressive slash reform slash liberal answers, interpretations, options. But then I I guess I add another layer and I don't know how much of it is my psychology background and how much of it is being a woman and being just kind of more nurturing and maternal. Then I give also if there's a shade of, you know, what's gonna be best for you, it's not just like what's meaningful to you, but like what feels right for you in your soul and in your heart. And and so that's like a subtle third layer that's there. You know, if somebody has experienced a loss and there are, there, there's a major simcha coming up in the family and they'll ask, you know, I know traditionally we're not supposed to go for this amount of time to a party or to a, to a simcha. And I'll say, well, you know, which is going to be more nourishing for your soul to go or to not go, you know, if it doesn't, or if you go, it's okay to decide once you're there, it's not right, you know, so to find a gray, that's also possible. I think that's been really important, too. So I don't know how much of that is female, or, you know, bits of each of the other ones. It's interesting, Emma and I were nodding vigorously as you were answering, and I go in the exact same order. So so it's fascinating. I share first, you know, the, the traditional response and then a progressive one. And then I say what feels really good in your heart. And I think yeah, it's important that Judaism feel okay. And we don't feel, I mean, as much as we're commanded to do anything, that it also fit us, who we are. Yeah, Thanks. definitely. Jessica, the other thing we do with each of our guests is to take them through our questionnaire, Maher. I have been so excited about this. I've been, um, (laughs) yes, I've been getting into my energetic space and going to bring my A game to questionnaire my hair. Okay. (laughs) Let's (laughs) drum roll. Let's go. Who was your first woman rabbi in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? Yes. Mindy Portnoy. I do you remember Ima on the Bima? Do you remember that book? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as like a gosh, I was like four, probably. My mom got that book for me. Maybe it was like 
five. Yeah, and I loved it. And my mom said to me, mothers have this wisdom. She's like, I knew you were going to be a rabbi when you were reading that. And I didn't come to this decision for, you know, decades later. So it's so interesting. There was something about, yes, something about seeing a woman rabbi, you know, in the illustrations of the story that really touched something deep within me, clearly. Yeah. Mm. Tell us about a woman that inspires you, Jewish or otherwise. Mm, Yeah. So I have just finished reading Abby Jacobson's memoir called I Might Regret This, or maybe it's called I Might Really Regret This. Abby Jacobson is a Jewish woman who created, produced, act in Broad City, a lot of glazers, her her co-producer, co-actor, both Jewish women. And as someone who's been working on my own memoir too, like the the combination of really funny, like great humor and so incredibly tender. You know, she's talking about a breakup and all the heartache that's along with that. And also deep wisdom and beautiful feminism. Oh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Cool. Good recommendation. Yeah. Fill in the blank. Being a woman rabbi is or women rabbis are the best. I love it. No other game in town. The best. (laughs) What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? That we have so many different sides to us, you know, that our um, profession is a treasured part of our life. And, you know, we contain multitudes, as I said before. Yeah, I think that people are quick to kind of put us in a small box. And there's so much more to each of us. Such a small box. Yeah. Favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? I think I'm going to pass on this one. Okay. Yeah. A Jewish text, teaching, or value that inspires you or informs your life? Mm, Okay. So the book of Hosea, there's a quote that Hosea says, Hosea describes God as dew, D-E-W. And I just love that characterization so much. If we think of the divine as something almost kind of effervescent, sparkly, disappears sometimes, or we don't see it if we're not paying attention, but also has so much, you know, nourishment, right? The ability to provide water is a vital substance. I, I love that. I love that quote from Hosea, you know, may the eternal be like dew. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's such a beautiful image. And I love that you reached for a text that is not the typical go-to. Um, yeah. Also, do you know that in South Africa, instead of saying Isaiah, they say, oh, no, I'm going to get it wrong. Isaiah. Fascinating. Yep. Oh, so interesting. I mean, not interesting if you live in South Africa, but if you're not from South Africa, it's really interesting. Right. (laughs) All the nuances. Yeah. So when I come back to North America and I'm talking about Isaiah, that's why. Um, Okay. And the last question for you is, what are you thinking about these days? Mm. So I was hanging out with uh, one of my besties the other night and she said a quote to me. Her name is Dr. Dina Samuels, um, another awesome Jewish woman. 
she said, your desires are the preview of your destiny. Your desires are the preview of your destiny. So if we think about this idea of co-creation with the universe and honoring the sparks that we have that light us up and knowing that time isn't linear, right? If we think about all of the ways that our joy and our delight and the things that we want to bring into our life are actually already created down the road. That's a really juicy place to play in. So I'll just, I'll leave you and your listeners with that nugget to chew on. Your desires are the preview of your destiny. Oh, wow. I, I'm so into that. It's, it's like a different play on manifesting, but I, I love the idea that it's already, it's already done. It's already yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah, that takes a lot of pressure off. And I'm going to be thinking about using the word juicy a whole lot more as an adjective. (laughs) I noticed that In my world. So many different different ways to sit with it, too. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm just going to enjoy making life juicier. See if you can work it into a sermon, Marcy. I'll give you that invitation. I'm going to. I love sermon challenges. Challenge um, accepted. I also, I also am going to be sitting with the the language that you've introduced around having a what did you call it a soul circle? Yeah, or soul um, tribe. Soul tribe. Soul tribe. Yeah. That was it. I love I love that language and that image and thinking about who's in my soul tribe. It's oh yeah, it's so great. We're not meant to do it alone. We are really not. <laughs> to do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. I could not agree more. Well, Rabbi Jessica Kessler Marshall, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been such a true pleasure on a very deep soul level speaking Mm. with you today. Where can our listeners find you and reach you? Yeah. Thank you for that invitation. So my website is probably the best place and that's www dot rabbi jessica marshall.com i also have a really active facebook group called soul whispers and divine winks with rabbi jessica k marshall um i post a lot of kind of nuggets to help keep us in that juicy space as it were and i have lots of wonderful offerings coming up i have three different retreats that are in the works i have an online gathering space that's going to be a seven week, you know, soul tribe, sacred circle, and that's going to be online. So that's for anyone all over the world to join. So um, you can find me online or on in my Facebook group and stay in the loop for all of these beautiful offerings. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Women Rabbis Talk and Instagram at Women Rabbis Podcast or by sending us an email at Women Rabbis Podcast. That's Women Rabbis Podcast at gmail.com or you can even leave us a voicemail with your questions and suggestions at anchor.fm slash women rabbis podcast we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and please don't forget to submit your ask the rabbi questions thanks as well to seth lindenman and to john claude haynes at c robin tech for their help with sound tech and editing 
Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on Anchor.fm and is available on your favorite podcast platform, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And a big thanks to you, Marcy. Oh, and thanks to you, Emma. And with that, we are out. Lahitraot! Amazing.